for the rest of you, would you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. Well, we have been a, uh, in a series of messages uh, in titled Developing Vital Relationships. We've been talking about this concept of vital relationships. You know the theme of our church is that God changes people through vital relationships. In our, our first week, all we were doing was just grabbing themes from the book of James. I had actually encouraged you over this month to be spending time in it on a daily basis. I actually have had some people tell me that they have been doing that. They've been uh, really uh, growing uh, deeply as they've been spending some time in their own personal study in the book of James. It's a great book. It's a rich book. We could spend uh, quite a number of months in it, but we were pulling out some themes um, from this book that connect us to relationships. Uh, the, vital, the vital relationships that we've been talking about are not only the relationship with God primarily, but your relationship with each other and even the relationship you have with yourself. Um, each one of those relationships is vitally connected um, to uh, themes that we pulled out of James. In, in the first week, if you were here, we talked about a faith that was tested. We were in James chapter 1, and we talked about relationships can bring great joy or great difficulties in your life. And in relationships, we talked about the fact that trouble was inevitable, and what was going to happen in those relationships is that God would use those relationships so that he can grow you and mature you. He wants to show you more of himself in the midst of those struggles, and then he wants to show you more of how you can grow to become like him. And if you remember, we talked about in that first week and James actually talked about the fact that you can have joy in the midst of those struggles. That seems so overwhelming to people. And if you remember, we also spent some time talking about the fact that there are two different types of testing. There's testing and uh, temptations. Then any circumstance that you go through can either be a test to grow your faith or a temptation to rob it. And the ultimate decision maker is you. That anything that comes at you, you determine whether I'm going to trust God through that trial and it will be a trial which is going to grow your faith or I'm going to trust in myself and my own passions and now it becomes a temptation which would hinder my faith. In our second week, we spent some time talking about a faith that loves. And you remember we were talking about the difference between hearing God's word and obeying God's word. We talked about what true religion is. True religion actually comes out and is practical. It's not just filling your mind with Bible knowledge. It's application in life. And, and one of the ways he talked about that was lift, looking after the orphans and widows in your distress, those that are hurting in a need in our church, those that are hurting in a need out in the world, just having a desire to meet those needs, a loving aspect. And we connected that to James chapter 2, where it talked about not having favoritism, not having discrimination in our churches. We should be a church that is loving and gracious of others. In our third week, we got some time to spend to look at the idea of faith is a faith that speaks godly. Out of our mouths, and we just spent a wonderful time in musical worship praising God, but oftentimes, if you remember, we talked about the fact that we could be praising God with our lips here at church, and then moments later, we're cursing mother people. And God's, and James says, it shouldn't be. That out of the same mouth should not come praising and cursing. My brother, it should not be. The inconsistency of our lives is a byproduct of what was happening in our hearts. And we were talking about what comes out of your mouth is a byproduct of what's happening deep in your heart. Who is ruling your heart? The last time I had an opportunity to meet, we talked about a faith that seeks reconciliation and resolution. And we talked about this idea that conflict is going to happen in your relationships. It's inevitable. 
that you put two sinful people together, you are going to have conflict. And James says, conflict comes at you not because of the things that are coming at you. It's primarily because of what's happening within me. And if you remember when we were here that week, we talked about the fact that you want something desperately. At times you get to a place where you want it so desperately that you want it more than the love of God and love of others. That I could even want something that's very good and right, but it becomes wrong because I make it more important than loving God and loving others. And we talked about the fact that pride can be behind it and covetousness and envy. And what we said was this, and what James was giving us his counsel is this, that as we seek God's wisdom, as we hear his word through our commitment to being in his word personally, but also being in community with one another, as we are hearing his word from other people, God changes our hearts and our lives. And God opposes proud, but guess what he does? He gives grace to those who are humble. Today, I'd like you to consider that we are in a faith that is patient in suffering, a faith that is patient in suffering. Well, this is going to end our series in James. Um, next week, we're going to begin this new series entitled uh, The Psalms of the Old Testament. It's entitled Knowing and Experiencing God in the Psalms. It's going to be cool to uh, uh, hear that. So who's on next week? Pastor Tim is on next week, and we'll be tag-teaming throughout the summer. Um, so we're looking forward to being in the, in the Psalms. The Psalms are just, I love the Psalms. Um, sometimes when I just don't even know how to put my feelings into words, I can go to the Psalms, and, and you can just read a Psalm, and it's like, that's exactly what I'm feeling, and that's exactly the struggle that I'm having. So I hope that you're going to be blessed as we spend some time over the summer going through those Psalms. Today, we're looking at a faith that is patient in suffering in James chapter 5. Read with me in verse 1 through 12. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the misery that is coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last day. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mold your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He did not resist you. How many of you struggle with suffering? Nobody in here struggles with suffering? Okay, so if you, get, you guys can leave, I'll just continue to preach to myself. Um, because I don't know about you, uh, life is just full of suffering. In fact, James is, you know, this book is about suffering. And James is now talking to uh, those that are struggling right now with being oppressed by those who are um, holding on to riches. So today what I'd like to focus on is this. Suffering, we want to talk about the why and the how behind it. Second, we want to talk about a little bit of selfishness that happens that causes suffering in our relationships. Third, we want to look at the idea that James gives to counsel those who are suffering. And then finally, we just want to talk about how God is sovereign over this. And he wants to tell you that he is sufficient in the midst of the sufferings that you're going through. Most people, when I counsel them, have two basic questions when they deal with their suffering. The first question starts with a why series of questions. The second question, a series of questions, begin with how. 
The why question is this. Why is this happening to me? I just don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. Have you, have you found yourself at that place in your life? The why questions oftentimes are there because they're just trying to figure out some meaning or purpose behind it. It doesn't make sense. I'm doing all the right things, and why is this happening? And we live in a culture today that basically teaches that if you are going through suffering, especially in some churches it's teaching that if you're going through suffering, it's a byproduct that there's something wrong with your relationship with God. That was the counsel that Job received. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And that may not be the case. So oftentimes when I sit and counsel people, they're trying to figure out the why. I just don't understand. Give me some meaning or some purpose behind the suffering. I don't know why God is allowing this to happen. Or what did I do wrong? And humanity will tend to go down one of two paths. Either they will try to fix it and try to do better because they feel that if they do better, they'll earn God's favor and they'll get out of their suffering. Or they become cynical in their lives and they become... uh, angry and bitter, and they say, I give up on life. But the why question moves to the second question, how? The how question is, how am I going to handle this? The how question is searching for some ways to adjust to this, to handle the struggles that I'm going through. I just got a diagnosis. I just heard from my boss that my job has been laid off. My relationship and my marriage is broken. Whatever the struggle is that you're enduring, how do I handle this? I think James gives us some counsel today. Corey Ten Boom, um, who was um, in uh, Nazi Germany, and when she was there and she was dealing with such great oppression in her life, she said this, there is no pit so deep that Christ, God, is not deeper still. That's huge. And if there's a theme for this morning's message, I want you to know that if no matter what the pit is that you're going through, whatever the struggle is in your life, there is no pit so deep. There is no struggle so deep. There is no diagnosis so deep. There is no relationship issue so deep that God is not deeper still to help you through this. Well, in this first section in James, he was dealing with some level of selfishness that was happening. In verses 1 through 3, it seems that these rich oppressors were oppressing people because they were starting by a covetous heart or a hoarding type heart. Look with me, it says in this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Something's coming down the road, you've got to watch out for it. Verse 2, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. What? James is getting at is this. One of the key elements that was happening in relationships was that we were becoming selfish because we were hoarding things in this world, thinking that the things of this world were going to provide help and healing for us. And if you've caught James, if you've been reading through James, he has been telling you that materialism and worldliness are never going to be a a statement there or something in your life that is going to be able to replace God. He said in chapter 1 that the rich are going to be humiliated. He talked about in chapter 2 that the rich are the ones that are oppressing you. He talked about in chapter 4, if you're turning to worldliness, you're not going to find real satisfaction in Christ. It's not riches in and of itself. It's the fact that we make riches our God. 
You could be a very wealthy person in this room. That's not the issue. The issue is whether you are making it your God. And these people were making it their God, and they believed that by their hoarding and holding on to it, that they were going to be able to find satisfaction in life, and they weren't. But there was a second thing that they were doing. In verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, you've kept back from them by fraud. They were cheating other people. They had employees that were there working for them who were mowing their fields, and instead of giving them their fair fair wage, what he was doing was holding back their wages. They were hoarding money, and they were not giving money to others. They were cheating people. But there was a third thing that they were doing in verse 5. You lived on earth, in luxury, in self-indulgence, pleasure-seeking. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. That James is arguing that if you're spending your life trying to be pleasure-seeking, and once again, there's nothing wrong with pleasures in this world, but if it is your primary goal, if your hedonistic goal is to seek pleasures of this earth and thinking that it's going to satisfy you and fulfill you, it's going to rot. The job is going to be gone. The bank account's going to be gone. The relationship is going to be over. And the only one that's going to be left there is either God as your Savior or God as your judge. The fourth thing that they did was this. They just got mean. They were pretty mean. In verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, I don't know if they were actually going out and taking the life of people, Or James, who we've said early on is the half-brother of Jesus. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of James is connecting to the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that if you're angry with your brother and you're holding bitterness, it is as though you murdered him. You remember that section? And it also said in in, um, the Sermon on the Mount that if you were lustful and looking at someone in lust with your eyes, it is like you've committed adultery with them in your heart. What, What Jesus was getting at is that external sin is a byproduct of what's happening in your heart. Who is ruling your heart? And James is saying that these people have condemned people. Remember in James chapter 2, James had said, who are the people that are bringing you into court? It's the rich people that are bringing you into court and slandering the noble name to whom you belong. These people are the ones that are after the world's riches, and they're condemning you and oppressing you. And all of it is driven by selfishness. And all of it will stand under the watchful eye of God. God says here that I hear. My ears are open to what has happened. I will see, and I will judge. I don't know what kind of oppression you're going through right now. Because we've already said that relationships can be a time of great joy and great pain. Think about the relationship difficulty that you may be having right now. And maybe the actions that the other person is doing is driven by selfishness. Maybe it's not materialism, but there may be an issue of hoarding. Maybe it's not materialism, but maybe there's an issue that they're cheating you in some way. Or they're seeking their own pleasures, or they are acting just out and out mean towards you. Or maybe you're doing that in your relationships. The reality is this. Our relationships will be hindered by selfishness and greed. But then James moves from there to talk about the theme that I want to really harp on today. Patience in the midst of suffering. Verse 7. It says this. Be patient, therefore. In light of everything that James has just said, 
in light of the fact that you are living under persecution, in light of the struggles that you are dealing with, in light of the fact that you may be having people treating you in selfish and wrong ways, in light of that, I want you to be patient, brothers. He uses the word brothers here, so he is talking to believers. In the prior section, he didn't use the word brothers, so we don't even know if these rich oppressors are believers, or maybe they're people that are sitting here in the church that are not believers in Christ. We don't know. But clearly, as he's talking about the suffering here, he is talking to people who know Christ. When he says brothers, it can be brothers or sisters. It's those who have trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's talking to you. That as you're dealing with the suffering in your life, he wants to give you some counsel. He wants to give you some comfort. James is going to tell us that there are two things that we need to avoid, two things that we need to do, and then he gives us some counsel of how we live this life. He starts by saying, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmers wait for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about everything, patient about it, until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. He keeps hitting this point. Be patient. Verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not crumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those who have blessed, who have remained steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, once again to believers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So James is giving some level of comfort and counsel to those who are struggling right now with suffering. And he starts by saying this in verse 9. There are two things I want you to avoid doing. When you are suffering, there are two things that you need to not do, avoid doing. The first one is stop your grumbling. Stop your grumbling. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, nobody in here grumbles, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, we grumble. It's interesting. If I won't take the time to go back to it, but in Numbers chapter 13, after God had taken Israel out of Egypt and taken them into the desert and promised them the promised land, the people continued to grumble. And in Numbers 13, it actually says their grumbling has reached the ears of the Lord. Now, God hears everything. So why did he specifically say it's reached my ears? God is hearing even more specifically, I have given you blessing after blessing and you grumble against me. And, and James is arguing here that when we are going through suffering and when you go through suffering and I go through suffering, I know our tendency is to complain and grumble. Now, grumbling is more internal. Complaining is more external. The grumbling heart that I have, this murmuring, and this, this attitude that happens deep in my heart now spills out of my words and I start to complain about the circumstances that I'm going under. And James's argument is this, do not grumble against who? One another. See, vital relationships are important, a vital relationship with God and our vital relationship with one another. How oftentimes do you find that as you're going through suffering, you have this grumbling attitude in your heart about God and about one another, and a grumbling, now complaining attitude externally. 
sometimes people ask, how do you sit and counsel people? Because sitting there, it seems like people are complaining and grumbling all session long. And you know what? At times it is. And part of my job is to help a person move to a place where they take that grumbling heart and that complaining words and move it back to praise for God and love for others. And as you see their hearts redirected internally towards God and now externally towards others, that I've been a receiver of mercy and a receiver of grace, and now I've become a dispenser of grace, it just becomes so amazing. If you think about complaining, what does it do to your relationships? It destroys friendships. It wrecks relationships. It stifles your witness. It will hinder the testimony. As you just complain and complain and complain. Thomas Watson said this, our murmuring is the devil's music. Oh, I like that line. Our murmuring is the devil's music. So James argues the first thing that we need to do in the midst of the suffering is to stop grumbling and complaining. The second thing he tells us is to stop swearing and lying. Verse 12, he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall into condemnation. Now, the swearing here at times um, could be that you were allowed to, in this culture, supposedly swear about anything, except you couldn't swear to God. You couldn't use God's name. The dilemma that we have today is that people are, are taking God's name and attributing to God things that he has not done. I will oftentimes hear in counseling that God is calling me to do this particular thing when I know God's word has said no. And in this swearing that God is telling me to do this, leave this relationship, act in this way, I can go back to God's word and say, what you're telling me does not line up with God's word. And in this pronouncement that they're making out of their mouths, they're taking God's name in vain. I don't think they realize it. And when they're making pronouncement that this is the way God wants it to be, I feel very uncomfortable for them. I'm concerned for them. Because God is a jealous God. And one of his commandments is don't take my name in vain. Stop your swearing. I think another thing that we have a tendency to do when we suffer is that we tend to speak. You remember he talked about that in James chapter 3, that when you're going through suffering, sometimes you have a tendency to praise God and then condemn one another so easily, right out of your mouth. James is really concerned about the way you speak is a byproduct of who's ruling your heart and life. So he says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and beyond that, stop it, because you're going to be judged. Every single one of us will stand before God and have to give an account for our lives. The sad reality is, is that there are some in this room who have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will stand before God unless you repent and you will stand before God and he will hold you accountable for your life. And if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is an eternity that is not with him. There's an eternity outside of him. That he has given you an opportunity for faith through his son. His son has lived a perfectly righteous life for you. He has died in your stead, and you are called to repent and turn. If, on the other hand, you have trusted in Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
You have trusted in him, not perfect. I live my life, I'm a sinner, but I live my life righteously. I live my life under the righteousness of Christ. I will help be held accountable as well. I will stand before Christ as a judge for the way I've lived my life in Christ. There is judgment for every single one of us. And he says in scripture that every even minor word that we say out of our mouths, we will be held accountable for and we'll be judged for. One of the problems that tend to happen when we suffer is that we tend to lie. We tend to exaggerate. We tend to make embellishments in our lives. Do you ever wonder why people lie? Oftentimes, I think that people lie because they want to just protect themselves. They are going through a difficult struggle right now, and instead of telling the truth, they want to try to protect themselves, they think, by not telling the truth. They lie about lying. One author put it this way, you lie, then you lie to self-protect, then you develop a habit of lying in your life, lying about something that is so trivial that has no real benefit, but you lie about it. Other times you will get to a place where you start to lie and you get so self-deceived, you start to believe the lies that you start telling other people. Then you get to a place where you start to rationalize and justify your lies. You develop a technique of lying. It becomes compartmentalized. You isolate yourself from others. You start to ignore others through your lying. And then finally, you get to a place where you think that lying is your duty. Can't help it. I have to do it. James's counsel to you that when you're going through the struggles is this. Stop your grumbling. Stop your lying. Speak truth. Radical commitment to integrity brings the healthiest relationships. As I sit in the counseling office at times, I see relationships that are broken down because people just don't tell the truth. And it hinders relationships. Well, the second thing that he wants to tell us is this. He doesn't just want to give us counsel of what not to do. He gives us counsel of what to do. When you're suffering, here are two things I want you to do. Verse 8, he said, be patient. He wants you to be patient. Well, what does he mean by patience? Patience is interesting. The Greek word um, talks about long-tempered. It could be translated a level of patience with circumstances or patience with people. I can persevere through the greatest difficulties if I can deal with the circumstances that come at me or with the people that are in my life. Patience never gives in to the circumstances, no matter how difficult it is. Patience is there to cope with the difficult people in your life. Patience accepts that God is the one that is sovereignly in control of everything that is occurring in your life, and he has brought this about, and he has brought it about for a reason, because he wants to use it to grow you. John Blanchard, in his sermon, he said this about patience. He called it this, steadfast endurance in adverse circumstances in the settled assurance of the overruling providence of God. Stay with me on this. A steadfast endurance. That you live your life consistently and persistently, steadfast endurance. In adverse circumstances, no matter what the circumstances that are coming at you, no matter what the suffering is, you could be steadfast in the midst of it. Because you have a settled assurance in what? That the overruling providence of God is at hand. That God is not surprised by this trial. 
If you remember in the first week, I used a line from a, a sermon that I heard recently that two words that you will never find in the Bible is that God panicked. God doesn't panic. What comes at you is not surprising to God. God knows eternity past perfectly. He knows eternity future perfectly. He knows what you're going through. And if I can have a steadfast endurance, no matter what the circumstance, because I am assured that God is providentially in control, that can give me the patience that I can have in life and the persistence. Verse 11, it says this, Behold, when we consider those who are blessed will remain steadfast, steadfast, enduring time after time. And then what James does is this. He gives you a series of examples to talk about their patience and perseverance. And he gives you a series of examples. The first one he gives you is farmers. Verse 7 through 9. It says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmers wait for their precious fruit. Being patient about it until they receive the early and late rains. You also be patient. Now, I don't know how many farmers we have in here. Um, I am not. I do not have green thumbs. Um, I kill almost everything that I try to plant. So you wouldn't want to come to me for planting anything. But here's the, here's the il illustration, that there are some farmers here. And what you do is you know when the season is. In this culture, their time period is early, which is in December, January, and late rains, which is later spring, that's the time that they have their best planting times. And they need rain in the first part of their planting time and then at the end of the harvest. So those early and late rains, they can't control. You cannot control the rain that comes upon your crops. What you can control is this. I plowed my fields, I planted the seed, and I'm waiting. Now, I bet you there's some farmers in here who have lost their crops because of... Um, because of a lack of rain or because of disease. And what did you do the next year? You planted your crops again. And that is what James is saying, that the constant consistency in this person's life, that as this farmer is going into this life, they are going, planting seed next year, planting seed again, harvesting, planting seed again, harvesting. That consistency is a byproduct of how we're supposed to be living in our relationships. But then he says in verse 10, he gives us another example. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He asked you to go back to the prophets. I don't know how many of you have ever read through um, Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the hall of faith. And in this hall of faith, we have prophets. And if you saw what the prophets had to endure, some were stoned, some were burned, some were cut in half. For what? Their faith in God and the fact that they continue to speak as spokespeople for God. They suffered great persecution and their lives were gone temporarily. And then what happens? The moment their lives are gone and this earth, where were they? With God in heaven. And we remember their names today. We don't remember the people who took their name, took their lives. What we do is we remember those prophets who struggled. And what James is arguing is this, that in your life, you need to be as passionate as those prophets who loved God so fully, who loved him so dearly, who loved that gospel message that God had given them, and to live that gospel message even in the midst of the greatest suffering. Pretty much every one of the apostles, the 12 apostles, take uh, Judas out, replaced with Matthias, pretty much every one of the apostles died horrific deaths. 
It's one of the key reasons why I believe the gospel is true, that these men believed the gospel, saw the risen Christ, and were willing to passionately even go to their deaths because they believed the gospel is true. So as you're going through your suffering, James argues, as a farmer, be consistent. As a prophet, be passionate. But then he tells you about Job. In Job, as you get a chance to read this, if you're going through suffering, that is a book that you should be meditating on. Now, in that book, it's not going to answer all your questions. What's interesting to me is this. If you read Job, and you remember Job lost his family, he lost his um, material livelihood, he lost pretty much everything. And then physically, Satan was allowed to even hurt him physically. And if you remember, in that very first chapter, he says, naked I came into this world, naked I will leave. He praised God. Even his wife was saying to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job says, no, I won't. And if you remember the counselors that are coming at him, saying that, you know, Job, the reason why you are not, uh, you're suffering physically, and the reason why you're suffering financially is because your faith is wrong, pretty much. And he went against that counsel. And then finally God came to him and said, I'm God. What amazes me about that book is that God never answers the question of why it happens. Never gave that to Job. What he did was he helped Job persevere through that suffering. And then he gave Job immensely more than he ever had after the suffering. And that's symbolic of what he wants to do for you. That we live on this life, in this world, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. It's a blip on the radar screen. In comparison to all of eternity, that the suffering, and if you suffer greatly for every day of your life on this earth, and you compare that to eternity, it's nothing. And what he was saying is this, Job lost everything. I was sovereignly overseeing that, but I sovereignly held him firm in his faith. And Job was determined because he trusted in God. The fourth thing I want you to consider is the fact that not only we need to be consistent and passionate and determined, but we need to be hopeful, verse 7 through 9. It says, Be patient, therefore, my brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits. Then he talks about establish, verse 8, your hearts for the coming of the Lord. He says in verse 9, do not grumble against one another. The judge is there. The judge is standing at the door. He says in verse 10, the name of the Lord. He is talking about the fact, verse 11, he says, the Lord is coming and compassionate and merciful. That he is focusing our attention on this. It's not about the struggles that you're having today. That's not where you place your hope. It's not about releasing the struggles that you have today. That's not where your hope comes from. Your hope is in Christ. And as you look forward through that struggle and know that there's a time where there is no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more tears, there's no more death. See, when we go through struggles, we're tempted to compromise. We're tempted to cave in. We're tempted to quit. I'm done. But if you live in the hope of the gospel, if you live in the hope of Christ's soon and immediate return, that will give you an assurance to deal with even the greatest dilemmas and the greatest difficulties of your life. So James argues that there are two things you need to stop doing. Stop grumbling and stop complaining. Stop swearing and stop lying. He tells you that there are two things that you need to continue to do. Be persistent and be patient. 
He tells you to look at some examples in life. And then what he does is he points you to himself. God points you to himself and he says that I am the one that is sufficient for you in the midst of the trial. Look with me in verse 4. What does he say? He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers you mowed your fields, you've kept back by fraud. It's crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached what? The ears of the Lord. God hears. You know, I think there's a difference between listening and hearing. God hears you deeply. He doesn't just hear words. He hears and he listens to you. He listens to the words that you say. He listens to the things that are done. He hears everything. I often say to my clients, I don't know who's telling me the truth in this office. I don't. I get two people sitting in an office and both of them are saying completely different things. I don't know, what, I don't know who's telling me the truth. But you know what I say to them? One person knows who the, who's telling the truth. God. God hears and he listens to everything. It's a vital link. And as he's hearing this, he is there and he's wanting to respond. Verse 4, it's not only that he hears and he listens deeply, he is the God Almighty. Verse 4, he says, the ears, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is this fancy word. It means Lord of the armies of heaven. He is the Lord God Almighty. It's not simply that he hears and listens deeply to what's happening in these relationships. He is the Lord God Almighty who is overarching. He is sovereign and providential. He is in control of everything that is occurring. But then he says in verse 7, he tells you more about himself. He says that I'm coming back soon. He says, be patient, therefore, my brothers, until the Lord's coming. Do you live your life in light of the fact that Christ came back at any moment? That at any moment, right now, God can come back, Christ can come back, and we would stand before him. Do you live your life that way? What James is saying is this, brothers and sisters, we are called to live our lives in such a way that Christ could come back at any moment. And that, could be, that should be a warning to us in one sense, that we should be living our lives in a right way, but it should also be a hopeful message to you, that the suffering that you're going through is temporary and it's soon to be gone. Christ is coming. Verse 8, it tells us that God is near. It says, you may also be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand or is near. Now that may be near. Now, James wrote this 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years seems like a long time. He hasn't come back yet. In God's economy, a day is like a 1,000 years. It's nothing. It's a blip. And God is patiently enduring so that all of his children are brought into the kingdom. And then he comes back. And it's near. And it could happen in our lifetime. It could happen this very day. Verse 9, it tells us not only is God hearing us and almighty and coming back soon and near, but he's also the judge. It says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not, you may not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. See, when Christ comes back and eternity is over, he is going to separate those who have trusted in him versus those who have not. And for those who have not trusted in him, there's an eternity away from him in a place called hell. 
a place of great turmoil and torment, a place of God's wrath being placed upon them for all of eternity. But then there is a group of people who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been judged and declared not guilty in a sense, who are justified in his sight. However, God is going to look at you and appraise your life in light of what he's done and say, what have you done with me? I want to hear good, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that that be your desire as well. He also tells us that he is a God who's compassionate. Verse 11. And it tells us that he's a God who's merciful. I said earlier that you have been a receiver of mercy. We're called to be a dispenser of mercy and compassion. Finally, God tells us that he is a God of truth. If he is calling you to be radical in your truth-telling, you know that God is true. You remember Jesus said, I am the way, the, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. So I don't know about your suffering today. I don't know what the difficulty is. Maybe it's a relationship where this relationship has hurt you so immensely and you're in such great pain and turmoil. I don't know if it's vocationally. I don't know if it's health. I don't know if it's financial. I don't know what the struggle is for you. Maybe it's emotional. What I can tell you is this, that whatever suffering you're going through right now, there is a why question behind it. There's a how question behind it. But greater than that, there's a God that's behind it, that is with you. That if I can, in the midst of the greatest suffering and the risk of the greatest relational difficulties, remind myself of the gospel, I am forgiven and free. I'm infinitely loved and I am totally accepted. I'm completely forgiven. That I stand as a child of God, a child of the King. No matter what you do to me or what you say about me, can't change who I am in Christ. And if I can turn my eyes upon Christ in the midst of this, you remember this little song? It goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow what? Strangely dim. In the light of his glory and his grace. Every one of us is suffering in some way. Some of us are suffering in a greater way. But I will tell you that God is greater than any suffering that you're going through. Turn your eyes upon him this morning. Lord, I pray.